Hi, I'm Josh Corman. I'm the founder of IamTheCavalry.org, and you're listening to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Hello, everybody. Welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Kerry Parker. Today, we have episode 332 for July 10th, 2023. And I've got a really, really great interview for you today. We brought Josh Corman back. We talked to him last fall. Uh, about some cybersecurity stuff. And at the time, he was talking about a upcoming White House cybersecurity strategy document that had not yet been released. And so we couldn't discuss it fully, but that has since been made public. And uh, I wanted to bring him back to talk about it. So this actually happened a, a couple months ago. This, this interview has been kind of in the can for a little while, but it's a really, really interesting interview. And we get into some kind of heavy policy stuff. And I know that might turn you off if you're not a policy wonk, you know, a DC policy wonk. Uh, but this is really important stuff. And this is kind of how our government helps to make life better for us. And I think that they are doing some really admirable things. Uh, there's a lot of moving parts. Our US government is full of red tape and, and lots of bureaucracy. But they are making progress with this stuff, and it's really good to see that. And this White House strategy document is kind of the the thing that kind of kicks everything off and serves as a template or an umbrella or maybe a mission statement kind of thing. But anyway, we're, we're going to get into all that with Josh. Uh, real quick, uh, I know that Meta just launched Threads. I know that a lot of people are signing up for that. If you've got an Instagram account, they've been pushing it, uh, I'm sure. There's a lot of really weird stuff going on with that. There's some dark patterns and a lot of data mining going on. I'll talk about all that next week. But for now, let me quickly set up this interview. First of all, first and foremost, it's really just painfully obvious that Josh really, truly, deeply cares about these issues. He's very emotionally invested in this stuff. That's one of the reasons I love talking to him about it, because he really, really, really does care about these things. And a lot of the things that he is a champion of are things with serious, serious impacts like life or death, literally life or death. But those same kind of principles can be applied to less critical things, but still really important things. And a lot of these principles are folded into this new White House cybersecurity strategy document. And it just sets the tone for implementing these things and getting to a much better place in terms of cybersecurity. And as we're going to learn, it's not just about making things more safe. In a lot of cases, it's about making things less complex. It's about removing things that are unnecessary so that we don't have to worry about them from a cybersecurity standpoint or getting them off the internet if they don't need to be connected to the internet, things like that. Very, very practical, very straightforward methodologies and approaches that make a whole lot of sense. And yet in practice, they can take a long time to implement. One thing that Josh does throw around a couple times, he talks about this term, uh, least cost avoider. Sometimes it's referred to uh, in economics as cheapest cost avoider or in tort law. I'm not sure exactly where the where this originated. But basically the idea is that you know when accidents can be avoided by either of two parties, that it's mostly obvious that you want to place the liability on the least cost avoider, or in other words, the party who could have prevented the accident at the lowest cost. So in that sense, it's sort of a macroeconomic policy, I think, that you know informs things like tort law and, of course, potential regulations. So anyway, that's why that comes into play. I think that's all I really need to talk about beforehand. So let's get right to our interview with Josh Corman. Mm-hmm. 
Josh Gorman is VP of Cyber Safety Strategy at Clarity, founder of I Am The Cavalry, and formerly served as the chief strategist of CISA regarding COVID healthcare and public safety, among several several other key positions. Welcome back to the show, Josh. Good to be back. Last time you were here, we were hinting at a forthcoming strategy document that you could talk a little bit about, but it wasn't yet published, and that document finally dropped in March. And uh, so that was something you were working on, obviously, at CISA, or work with people that were working on, at least. And so I'd like to talk about that today. The document really isn't that long. I actually read through almost all of it. I got a little bit dry, but it's about 40 pages long. covers a lot of ground, which, of course, is good and bad. On the one hand, that means it's got a lot of great ideas. On the other hand, it means there's a lot of stuff that (laughs) maybe we're not doing that we should be doing. I don't know if there's a lot of stuff in there. So let's start. Could you just give us like a 30,000-foot view of this new policy document? What's in there with the audience? What's the purpose? Okay. Um, Well, I did put some thoughts to pen and paper, or at least, you know, I wrote a blog called Consequential Cybersecurity on the Clarity blog to help people understand at least the hot take on this. And to clarify, I didn't really work on this whilst at CISA. I ended my mm. emergency federal service in January of 2021. Um, I spent a very long time after that intense you know, task force work looking at what worked, what didn't work, why didn't it work, how can the country be better poised for the next crisis. And there's significant problems in the overall strategy and framing of designated critical infrastructure interagency collaboration, who owns what. We were having the rise of the new Office of National Cyber Directorate. So I tried to metabolize a lot of my frustration and successes and failures into some constructive frameworks. And I have very recently started sharing them publicly. But over the first several months after I left CISA, I started sharing these Socratically with CISA, with White House Office of National Cyber Director at the LNCD, the newest part of the White House, uh, put into law. January of 2021, and now staffed. Uh, work with the National Security Council, which is a longer standing part, the NSC. We should talk about the dynamic between those two at some point, if you remind me, because they're in the forming, storming, norming, performing stages of their evolution. And uh, so there were several things happening concurrently. One is, generally speaking, White Houses should probably have a strategy for cybersecurity, especially in a hyper increasingly connected world. And it had been a while since we'd seen one. To my lessons learned from the Cisco task force and from the successes and failures of the government to do its job and the public-private partnerships are coming undone, have encouraged a at least refresh, but now rewrite of a pretty substantive document from the Obama administration called PPD 21 or Presidential Policy Directive 21. That is going to be in the pantheon and mix here. But that is what established 16 designated critical infrastructure sectors, the idea that each one has a federal custodian called it used to be called an SSA or sector specific agency. Now it's called an SRMA or sector risk management agency. And those are the public half of what you've heard called the public private partnership, which is usually a thought terminating cliche, but the hand waving, but that is being tested right now. And you probably know pieces of that mix in the private sector. There's usually a sector coordinating council or an SCC. There's usually an ISAC or an information sharing analysis center that does the technical operations, you know, I, I basically made a schoolhouse rock set of pictures <laughs> awesome. where we were, why it doesn't work anymore. If it ever did, mm-hmm. what has to change and how risk is really manifested. 
and how we have the haves and the have nots and most of the participation in public private partnerships. So the haves, not the have nots and 85% of the owners and operators are have nots. And, you know, all these things I call target rich cyber poor. So we could do a lot of that, but you know, to, I'm, I'm kind of casting a wide net to come back to your question here, which is the white house national cybersecurity strategy is something that should come out pretty often. This one was harder than most because we learned a lot and because PPD 21 is too long in the tooth and because we saw where private goods trumped public goods like colonial pipeline. Should I do what's right for my shareholders or for the Eastern seaboard mm. like hospitals, you know, like mm-hmm. what's right for our data breach fines and ransoms versus what's right for public safety, degraded, delayed access to patient care. And generally what I was saying in the white house post CISA, I mean, I'll clearly I briefed them while I was at CISA, but my real full throated calls for substantive change, which were heard, you know, so it wasn't just me, but I, I guarantee you, I was an outsized voice in some of these discussions. By the way, I also took these models to Congress, right? Bipartisan committees of jurisdiction, mm-hmm. House and Senate for the different aspects of this. And and I think everybody kind of can tell it's not working, right? And so what you had was a series of drafts. Some did not, some pieces of these drafts did not survive contact with the agency process and other sure. goals and deputies and principals and and eventually signed and signed by the signed off by the president. But this this is a very foundational declaration that this is what's important to this administration at this point in history for this executive branch. And within that, many of the other parallel movements need to harmonize with it. And more beyond what I just said, cybersecurity still, knock on wood, remains a fairly nonpartisan or bipartisan issue so far. I, I think that it's ending soon, but not yet. Uh, really? I can, I can feel where the schisms will manifest, but it, but, but not yet. And so we have a window with which to make some substantive change. Um, and I experienced some of this bipartisan bicameral support in December when the patch act passed mm-hmm. law and omnibus. I mean, I've been working on the bones of that thing for almost exactly nine years from the first oh, time of it until it passed in the law. But this was minimum mandatory seatbelt laws for medical devices, basically. So Ralph Nader seatbelt right. laws for, and there's a bunch of stuff in it, but it granted explicit statutory authority in federal law for the U S food and drug administration centers for disease and radiological health to have mandatory minimum cyber hygiene for pre-market approval, post-market surveillance, five to case admissions. But like you need to have minimum defensibility and hygiene in medical devices now. And that was bipartisan. The lobbyists tried really hard, spent a lot of money to try to kill it. And Congress said, we're in a new place now. This is affecting patient care, patient outcomes, loss of life. We have a job to do to protect the public good. We're going to do it. I know you don't like it. Tough. So that, to me, was the canary in the coal mine. There's new political will. And I, I honestly, I don't know if they'd ever admit this, but I honestly believe that the White House stood their ground on some of the more controversial items that did make the final cut in part because they saw that demonstration of unity mm. on the part of Congress in December. Okay. Cause there's a lot of horse trading and fighting over oh, sure. shouldn't, shouldn't stay. And I saw through table reads, you know, different drafts and I saw which ones got watered down, watered down, watered down, which things stayed pretty strong. So I, I answered, I may have maybe even blunted several of your questions, but I guess if I were to try to TLDR this thing, it's appropriate for any White House to publish their strategic intent, followed up by which both articulates what's in flight and telegraphs what's coming and where they're going to put their pressure and their budget. 
it's usually followed by implementation documents, plural, for certain aspects of this. A lot of people complain that there's no implementation here. That's by design. That's mm. what these things do. But this one, I think, is more important than prior ones for some of the content reasons, but also some of the moment in history reasons. And the other changes that are flanking it, such as the PPD-21 rewrite. Like It's not, it's not going to be a light touch anymore. It's going to be a heavy red pen kind of a thing, which then cascades to something called the National INSERP, National Cyber Incident Response Plan, which is how the federal government handles national level issues and other things too. National Infrastructure Protection Plan, things like that. So there's a, a whole cascade of things that will flow from this. Even and since ONCD, which is the primary author of this, the Office of National Cyber Director is a a now permanent institution in the White House. We never had a permanent guarantee of any cyber in the White House. Mm. Say the career staff will have continuity of service irrespective of who the next several presidents are. Right. So part of the reason the, the Cyberspace Alarm Commission in Congress and Langevin's leadership prior to retirement to establish the Office of the National Cyber Director was so that we could have more continuity of care and long view in the white house as opposed to whatever the president did or didn't want and how sure. they were or were not. So I said a lot of stuff there, um, maybe ruined and blunted some of your questions, but <laughs> I do think this is a, a significant document given the context and history and flow of recognizing the importance of cybersecurity for national security, critical infrastructure and the like. I also think it's the first one written by and, and ex- will be executed by a more lasting institution of office cyber national cyber director. And I think some of the content pillars one and three are doozies. And I'm sure we're going to talk about how the content is materially different than previous manifestations of these. So yeah, they're listening and there's still a lot of fighting behind the scenes. Boys are fighting behind the scenes, but they're listening and, uh, and there's more to come. All right. So you mentioned the pillars and there were, there were just real quickly, there were five of them. The first one was defend critical infrastructure. The second was disrupt and dismantle threat actors. The third was shape market forces to drive security and resilience. The fourth was invest in a resilient future. And f- the fifth was forge international partnerships to pursue shared goals. You, you said that this superseded uh, uh, the PP. <laughs> I already forgotten it. PPD 21. PP. Yes. It just, you know, it doesn't stick in the brain. Presidential uh, policy directive is a PPD. Yeah. Okay. Number 21. <laughs> What were some of the more important or maybe novel things that were in this document that weren't in the previous ones? Does this document represent any major shifts in policy? Uh, sir, I guess at the, I think you even asked this, but at the 30,000 foot level, it's not novel to have one from a president. There was one in the first year of the Trump administration. Um, I remember some lines in that I, I was quite fond of. There was one in Obama administration. Uh, in fact, the Obama administration also called for, you may recall, a bipartisan commission on enhancing national cybersecurity, sometimes called the Donlin Commission. But it was, um, uh, I testified to that commission as well. So I think the U.S. has been trying to figure out its cyber posture and policy and footing. But, you know, even as far back as Richard A. Clark being a cyber czar or um, Melissa Hathaway, like we, we Mike Daniels after them, we, we've had cyber leadership. It's just how empowered they are and how much control and budget they have is varied. So this is the next one. I think how this one's different than the prior ones is a lot of the focus in the past had been on what is the, the executive branch doing to protect its own networks. Mm. This started front and center squarely. Critical infrastructure is the most critical thing. So that looked outward from the internal agencies towards privately owned and operated providers of critical infrastructure. So this is not a superseded by PP21. It's just that 
because the very first out of the gate hard hitting is we have got to protect critical infrastructure resilience. People need water. And why? One of the things I say during and after CISA was if you look, even though I went in to protect hospitals and vaccine supply chains ostensibly, we ended up doing quite a bit of all hazards strains on most lifeline life safety, critical infrastructure. We had successful cyber disruption of the water you drink, the food you put on your table, the oil and gas pipelines that fuel our cars, homes, and supply chain, the schools your kids attend, municipalities around towns and cities, federal agencies charged with state secrets right, and national security, and what I care the most about, timely access to patient care with now proven mortal consequences. Stuff's on fire. You do not mess with Maslow's base of the pyramid, right? Food, mm-hmm. shelter, safety, disruptions. You're not going to be inventing the next iPhone or writing poetry or sonnets if you want for food, shelter, safety, security. So, like, the ability for the public to trust their governments to govern, the permission to do so is safe, resilient drinking water, electricity, heat in the winter, cool in the summer, timely access to patient care. We are messing with Maslow. So this gets people's attention. And this has really been, this, uh, I think, the overall theme of the all five pillars is Hey, uh, voluntary cybersecurity has been the dominant model since President Obama's executive order that led to the NIST cybersecurity framework. There was a House bill, bipartisan House bill, there was a bipartisan Senate bill, and both got completely shut down by instead a crowdsourced NIST cybersecurity framework that was voluntary. We've had a 10-year voluntary model, and one of the key first recognition points in this strategy is voluntary only takes you so far. Free market forces only take you so far. There is a time and a place to use public good and public power and regulatory power. That time is now. And we're not going to shy from using it. We're going to use light touch, but no lighter than required to trust, to deserve and maintain the trust of the public for these lifeline things. So I think point one is critical infrastructure is front and center. Well, and so it leads to my next question is how much these are all grand ideas. And, and I agree with most of what's in there, I think, actually. But how much of this can they actually implement on their own? Like, how much of this can be done under the current auspices of whatever authorities that are already there with the funding that's already there? Because that's another thing that's often lacking is you've got the authority, but you don't have the funding. Yeah. You know, how many things can actually be done existingly? And how much of this are we going to have to still go to get congressional approval or create new agencies or add authorities to agencies that exist so that these things can actually be regulated and forced upon the people who don't want to do them? Yeah, I know you're a software guy, so you know, I mean, I'm not sure this term is even used anymore, but you remember the old term horizon one, two, three, right? Like, what can you do right now? What can you do in the next, you know, six to 18 months? What can you do past that? They're doing all three. So within pillar one, I know we're going to bounce around on these pillars, but within pillar one, the direction from the White House, and this even came from the NSC, not just the ONCD, but uh, during Colonial Pipeline, before this document was written, and Newberger, the most uh, empowered cybersecurity official in history in the White House. She's in the National Security Council for Cyber. She uh, did a ICS sprint, industrial control system sprint for the Colonial Pipeline afterwards and said, I want to see some meaningful proposals. I want to see TSA used, you know, do you have authority? Are you using it? Are you using it enough? So there was a real rapid response, which helped inform some of the aggressive posture in this document. And the idea was in pillar one, agencies have unused and underutilized, unused and underused existing authorities, statutory Mm -hmm. authorities. If you have them, use them. Where you lack them, we will be making joint proposals to the bipartisan bicameral support in Congress to 
get you new authorities and budgets. And, um, and then some really big controversial ideas come in shaping market forces, pillar three, like maybe introducing software liability once and for all. Yeah. Because too often the cost is placed on the victim or those in the least position to absorb that risk, to identify and or absorb that risk. So um, every other industry has liability placed on the least cost avoider. Right. Everything does except for software. So um, this is controversial and not likely to happen during this administration. And probably if I'm a betting man, not likely to happen through Congress. It's probably going to be through the courts. But what the executive branch does with stuff like this is they telegraph their intentions and their strategy. And these are paid attention to by trial lawyers in the the court systems or judges. And they're paid attention to by Congress. And they're paid attention to outside of government insurers, um, which we're going to talk about later, I assume, and credit rating agencies and other international partners pay attention to these things. So this says what we see, see, how we see the world, what we think needs to happen. And the intention is where you have existing authorities and that are unused or underused, go use them. And earlier versions of this actually specifically called out which ones they knew had unused and underused and mm. got a little watered down. Um, <laughs> but, but you already saw within about a day or two, the environmental protection agency, which is the sector risk management agency for the water and wastewater did pretty much exactly what the white house asked and said, take the CISA cross sector cyber performance goals as a starting point and use them as a basis for regulation for your sector. So they said, Hey, there's an annual survey done for water and wastewater sanitation during your sanitation survey, assess uh, which of these 39 controls from the cross sector cyber performance goals are in place. And we'll be smarter, you know, armed, armed with that information empirical basis, we'll be smarter about future action. Uh, so even within a couple of days, EPA's, you know, believes they're taking their existing authorities and without mandates, right? They're just trying to see who's doing which things to which extent. So the appropriations and budget and unfunded mandate part that people love to throw around, they have authorities. They have not been really used much yet for cyber. I really like the fact that the document talks about shifting the onus away from the user because it seems like we've been doing that a lot of a lot of victim shaming and a lot of heaving all these security options onto and privacy options onto the user and then blaming them when they don't set them properly or or whatever. Why do you think that is? You mentioned let's go ahead and talk about insurance too and liability. Why do you think it is that this one industry has managed to escape? what no other industry has from a legal standpoint of being responsible for these things. And we sign these terms of service and these end user license agreements that we click agree on sometimes just by cutting open a box with a label on it and absolving these people of this responsibility. Did that industry just grow so fast that the regulations could keep up? How did, how did they manage to escape that? And how are we going to rein that in in the future? And then one more to add on with the insurance part, if the government gets like FEMA sort of thing, if it, we kind of have a FEMA for cyber, you know, where there's these massive incidents and now there's this pool where the government can step in with, you know, unreasonable amounts of money for cyber catastrophes, basically. Is that going to just embolden some of these bad guys to do more things because they might get more money from insurance or and maybe companies to be more lax because, oh, government's got my back. I don't have to try it. Well, you just identified three hours of content <laughs> for those sub questions. Sure. So- let me try to give you a terse answer so we can get to the rest of the content. Let's see reference pointers. A very prescient book that people interested in the questions you asked about, why don't we have cyber insurance, et cetera. Excuse me, not insurance, cyber, software liability. It's probably 12 years old now, but it's called Geekonomics, The Real Cost of Insecure Software 
by David Rice, beautiful human being who's fairly senior guy at Apple now, but he helped me write the rugged software manifesto hmm. later. We actually bonded by fighting over parts of his book a little bit. Um, but uh, that kind of goes through a lot of the history and it's multifaceted and multi-layered. But the simple casual answer for someone that's not going to go read that book is we did have provable harm from software flaws. One of the famous ones that's taught to engineering schools and medical schools and complex, complex systems theory schools is from Nancy Levinson's study of the Therac 25 machine, or maybe Therac 35. I'm so tired right now. But there was a radiation delivery machine that had a two, two different ways to administer the dosage of radiation. And one particular pathway could be off by one decimal point. Hmm. Or, or, or more decimal points, I think. Uh, but you can get 10 times the intended radiation and it maimed people and it killed people. So we had actual demonstrable harm from software mistakes. There was a big debate at the time, and people can read and study this thing, that software and IT was new. It was a global market. It was the fastest growing part of our GDP. We didn't want to create barriers to entry. You know, what if we make, you know, hurdles and our other countries don't and all these mm. different, you know, arguments you've heard a thousand times before. And you're currently hearing about large language model processing, mm -hmm. stuff like that. But like, you know, we, we decided, okay, we will have to regulate this. We'll have to have accountability, but let's give it five years. Well, it's been like 35 now. Um, mm. I can't remember what year that was anymore, but it was meant to be a small delay uh, as we got more information. And then things like you've already touched on some of the other complicators, like big unaccountable organizations wanted to codify this. So there were people that manipulated the computer fraud abuse act from 1984 to make it harder to be liable. They made shrink wrap contract agreements where you're essentially waiving your rights without even knowing it, without really having a chance to negotiate it. So there's some terms and conditions and things like that. So th there's a whole litany of things that have, um, kept it unaccountable for much longer than originally intended. And it's not, not only is it overdue markets, I'm not an economist either, but I spent a lot of time with them. In fact, I've done several talks on software liability over the years and two, two at RSA alone. Like one was called software liability question mark, the worst possible idea, except for all others. Mm. But if you talk to economists, um, markets want to be efficient and markets can't be efficient unless you reveal true costs. Mm-hmm. And you want to put the true, the cost burden on the least cost avoider in the system, which tends to be the upstream producer, because that liberates wasted funds to let them buy more products. And like, so like, it's highly diseconomic that we don't have liability placed on the least cost avoider. It's just things like Coase's theorem. And, you know, I'm not an economist, but someone that knows eco economics, you know, usually when we pull someone in from another discipline, they're like, why haven't you guys done this yet? This is the least economic thing you could do. So hmm. there's a moral aspect to it. There's a, transparency aspect to it. There's a national security aspect to it, but there's even just a, this is the most economic thing to do is identify true costs, place cost burdens on least cost orders, which motivates and incentivizes overall cost reduction. So this is, this is going to be a huge food fight and I've already seen the camps forming, but they're putting big things on the table because if you always do what you always done, you're always going to get what you always got. And we want to see some changes. We need to make some changes. And at a minimum, the overall theme here is the public-private partnership is imbalanced. We're too deferential to private sector desires at the cost of public goods. So we are going to fix that, and not just in this document. That was the instruction of the PPD 21 rewrite as well. Just so I don't piss off all your listeners about the liability thing, it says right in there, and, and needs to say in there, 
this includes the opportunities for safe harbor. So like, it's not just like, let's put liability on people we don't like or rich people. Like that's how it sounds to some people. No, it's saying this is a shared responsibility between those who produce the def- the, the infrastructure we try to defend. And it may not be defensible. And those who own and operate that infrastructure and the victims and the users of those services downstream. And right now it just by default, all that liability and harm falls to the victims and or the owners and operators. So this is a rebalancing. And if you did everything you could in some nation state or terrorist group still goes above me on that, there should be safe harbor. Like if you do these reasonable care steps, you should not have infinite liability. So Mm. the notion of introducing liability is to put the cost burden on the least cost avoiders and be efficient, but not to, have everything fall to people. There should still be safety nets, safe harbors, legal protections when you've done the right things for your part of that shared responsibility ecosystem, and there's still an adverse outcome. Right. Yeah, there's sort of a food chain there, right? And at some point, you need to kind of go up the food chain to the next person who has capabilities in the, the, to, to handle something that maybe that the lower levels can't. Yeah, and, and this touches on the insurance stuff too, but um, when I was at CISA, I wrote the CISA.gov slash bad practices. There were only two at first. Now there's three before we left. And I think they're planning to add more, but these are ratified by the insurance industry is, Hey, we're going to put this into our underwriting. Like these are the three things that we said were dangerous. So we said the use of unsupported end of life operating systems in service of national critical functions and critical infrastructure is dangerous, especially egregious on internet reachable technologies. Mm-hmm. Anything about hard code to fix passwords. So, Imagine if we try to say from the White House, water and wastewater chemical engineers can't, you know, are negligent if they're using unsupported end of life operating systems or they're not using multi-factor authentication. But imagine if the supply chain that sells into them doesn't support multi-factor authentication. So some of it is, are you getting goods that are defensible from your suppliers? And then some of it is, are you doing the things to defend them properly? So that those demarcation points for something like a bad practice involved the patch act being necessary for medical devices. The device is sold in the hospital, but now are being looked at with the house and Senate bills on minimum cyber hygiene for hospital operators. So you have to do both. And the part of this strategy acknowledge that finally. And the white, the white house did not specifically task CISA with this, but CISA has put out some publications recently called safety by design, safety by default mm-hmm. in collaboration with NSA and FBI, but also in collaboration with several allies like Australia and Germany and, and the UK. So, uh, this notion is saying we're going to give cyber performance goals to the owners and operators of critical infrastructure, but we're also going to give guidance on your responsibilities to make products that are safety, safe by design and safe by default. All right. So you talked about other governments, and this is, brings up another question I wanted to, to ask you, and that is, I think they're do. I think that was the UK that said they were going to do this, and that is the, where the government was actually going to be involved in actively scanning their corporations in the country to look for vulnerabilities and then responsibly notifying them, Hey, you got, you got a problem here. You might want to get this fixed before somebody else finds it kind of thing. Is that something that we should consider doing? And, and if to take it to its ex- extreme, I mean, you could white hat hack these things, right? You could have the guy, if it was egregious enough, like, let's say, what was the, um, what was the, the struts? There was the, the struts problem. There was a couple of really serious problems that we had recently. Yeah. 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 That's what I was thinking. I was log for Jay. Would it ever make sense for the government to actually just actively get in and like, you know what? We got this. <laughs> we, you're already hackable. Let me get in there and fix it for you. That's pretty extreme. But what do you, what do you think about either the passive scanning and notification or actually actively fixing? Well, there's a lot packed in there. Um, yeah, I, as always. I was at Hack the Capital last week or two weeks ago. It's all blurred to me. And Mark Montgomery from the Cyberspace Learning Commission gave a talk and someone asked him this very question about, hey, the UK government scans their citizen infrastructure 
should we do that too? And he's, and, he, and this is not my answer. This is his answer, but it was something like, you can't do that here. They have the Magna Carta. We have the constitution. Uh, <laughs> you know, I understand what you're asking for that. We don't have the titles and authorities to do that. And so he just shut it down. Let me give you something in the vicinity answer. Although I understood his answer too. We do have opt in taxpayer pre-funded services from CISA and other places, but let's just stick to the CISA one. So one of them is called Sci-Hi or Cyber Hygiene Scanning. So if you are part of, quote, designated critical infrastructure, as defined by Presidential Policy Directive 21 from the Obama administration, you get free access to a nightly scan of your external IPs domain hmm. that will tell you and send, email you a report of the known vulnerabilities that we can see on your okay. surface. And so you have to opt into that. Um, we're not actively scanning and sending you emails like we're from the government. We're here to help, but it's um, for those who have availed themselves of it. It's instructive because even if you don't have a big security budget or security team, wouldn't it be nice to know that what your attack surface looks like? And then number two, I, I found that that was a lot of noise for someone that was underfunded. Someone I called target rich, but cyber poor. So I said, look, these, tar- these organizations that are target rich, but cyber poor, you know, 85% of the owners and operators and critical infrastructure in the U S are, have no security staff at all. You can't just give them a laundry list of vulnerabilities and expect them to, to fix them all. So I was not the only voice doing this, but I helped get us to publish what's now known as KEV, the known exploited vulnerabilities mm-hmm. catalog. So what I think you know from our last chat, I uh, maybe knew anyhow, um, in a given year, only about three, three percent of all CVEs get exploited. Hmm. That is not an argument to, to not patch. That's an argument to patch smarter based on which things are most likely to be exploited. And Kev took it a step further. And, and to, by the way, to answer the ones that are most likely, one of the coolest um, projects is called um, EPSS or Exploit Probability Scoring System. Some data science was done on these factors strongly positively correlate with eventual exploitation. Uh, first.org now maintains that project. So EPSS has always been something I use in my AppSec programs, my P-certs, and my incident response stuff especially because you don't have a CVE yet. So CVSS is wildly inadequate for actual prioritization. Because like I said, only 3% ever get exploited. Mm. But CISA was already in collaboration with other agencies um, looking at known exploited pests, known exploited vulnerabilities. So the CAD catalog is now machine readable and and public Mm. and added to. So this is a subset of those 3% that have actually hurt a lot of people. And you should pay very close attention. So I think... On an opt-in basis, you can get a free vulnerability scan nightly, and you could choose, let's fix the CAV issues, the known exploited ones first. The rest of them can be done later or whenever we have budget and time to do so. But during the pandemic, we couldn't reach all these people and we couldn't sign them up fast enough. So someone pointed out that tools like Shodan and Census.io and even Thingful, I think is one of them, already scan and already know. So could we, if we are aware of these previously scanned things, could we warn people that we've seen exposure? And then also my team published something called SOS, get your, I'm going to use scare quotes, stuff off search, uh, <laughs> get your poop off yes. Shodan. Um, mm-hmm. So I couldn't say that on a government document, but we basically, it was an infographic with a series of instruction books afterwards that said, um, hey, see what uh, your assets are showing on the internet. Uh, see what your adversaries can see. So number one is enumerate what your adversaries can see. Number two is re- remove the things you don't need. Number three is harden the things you do need. And number four is you should probably do this on a regular basis. So maybe get on those sci-high things and Kev routine. 
Uh, so we, we try to meet people where they are and identify my yeah. risk. So we are never going to, I don't think we're likely to do what the UK did and actively scan, but there are passive scanning things that were used during the election security, during the hospital and vaccine supply chain security, which were woven in and they had different names at the time, but Jack Cable was one of the architects of a lot of that. And he went to Congress for a bit, but he's now back at CISA um, advancing these programs. So part of the cyber IG now, I think includes the leverage of um, previously passively scanned things that could be used to help identify and buy down risk and critical infrastructure. But uh, really the, the goal is to get them, those are the on ramps to get them into this minimum cyber performance goals. The voluntary crawl stage of the NIST cybersecurity framework is what I like to call it. NIST cybersecurity framework is 400 pages. <laughs> But the CPGs or the cyber performance goals were meant to be the crawl stage or crawl walk run towards doing a more robust program. And then the White House said, hey, while this is not making them mandatory, we want each of your regulators to start with the CPGs and make mandatory minimal hygiene within your current regulatory authorities or ask for new ones where you lack them, which we talked about. You said that this is basically like the starter document. And there will be documents that follow this, maybe for the various sectors that maybe might not get the same attention. But there were so, some things that were not explicitly mentioned in this because there are some very specific things that were that were yeah. called out. But there were some that weren't, and I, I want to get your take on these and see if these are things that are handled maybe elsewhere or or might be coming later. And that what about the marketplace for zero days and things like that, and or companies like the NSO Group and their Pegasus product? There are for profit hacking companies state level in some cases or selling stuff to state level. And I have to figure that companies like Zerodium, which buys zero days are probably reselling them to companies like NSO group. Does the white house or does the U S government, should they be taking any kind of a more active stance? I know they said they, there was something they put out about NSO about putting them on some list. Should we be taking more active uh, role globally to try to say that this is not cool, (laughs) that we should not be allowing, you know, private marketplace in this kind of area. Well, again, we could spend an hour unpacking this. And there's some people I might point you to if you do want to spend an hour unpacking this. Because I spend a little, quite a bit less time on these offensive zero-day markets and more on defensive and defensibility and aligning incentives for for resilience. And you know, I'm more of a defender than an attacker. Separating the ones that have been sanctioned for doing illegal things or or, or sanctionable things, it's a it's a slippery slope if you're not careful because like the zero day initiative ZDI, you know, or bug bounties, are, are they going to be on your continuum? Right. I mean, people pay money for these. So is, is it, uh, is it the act of commercializing research and finding But the, the people paying for that is the bug count, the companies that are looking to get them fixed, right? Eventually it's not that they're not being sold onto someone else for exploitation. They'd be sold to the people who want to get them fixed. That's different, right? Yeah. There's, there's, there are people that look at this. There's also some, Sometimes it gets into dangerous areas. There's an international agreement called Vasanar. It looks like Wasanar, but it's the W is pronounced V. And smart people are involved and engaged in that. And I can introduce you to them if you like. But um, mm-hmm. but it's it's a, it's an interesting and perilous area. But there's ways to break it down and, and frame it. But there are markets for these always, whether they're dark markets or in the in or lawful markets and points in between. Uh, and it's naive to think that the markets won't exist. The question is, you know, what are the right incentives and carrots and sticks and postures and policies to mm-hmm. get the benefits and reduce the risks. So when someone crosses the line, they get sanctioned or they get added to OFAC or they, you know, get banned and shunned and things like that. But yeah, the, I mean, what's the Dan gear quote, all technologies are dual use, right? So, um, these markets exist 
they exist for the good guys and the bad guys, and um, they will continue to exist. The question is, how do you govern those markets the best you can? All right. So in, in Pillar 2, it talks about actually taking the fight to the bad guys. And and I assume we're doing this on some level already. So I'm not sure what this policy document recommends that might or that might be different or, or novel going forward compared to what we're already doing. But what what does that look like? What is it when the government decides to go more, I don't want to say maybe on the offense, maybe that's the wrong way to put it. But how do we go after the bad guys? What what does this policy doc recommend that we do to go on the offensive for for lack of a better term? So so relative to pillars one, three and parts of four, I spent very little time on two. As, as I indicated, I'm more of a defense resilience builder uh, defender than I am on that. I, I found pillar two to be more saber rattling and mm. and chest thumping. We do have a defend forward kind of a inheritance from the previous administrations, and this one seems to be continuing that and calling for collective defense and things like that. And and I think if you combine it with parts of pillar five, like sometimes the only way we can do this is with international partners who have different rules mm-hmm. than we do. So, mm-hmm. um, so it's probably better to read two and five together than alone, but I did not spend a lot of time on them. One thing I didn't see this document, I was actually kind of hoping to see. And again, maybe there's, these are detailed documents that will come later. Or these are you know, adjunct things, but I didn't see anything about election security. And uh, <laughs> it's been such a weird topic because for a long time, you know, folks like us were saying these devices are potentially vulnerable. They're hackable. Look how bad they are. They're running old software. They've got RF interfaces that are easy to get into. And yet, at the end of the day, that hadn't really happened that we could see that it affected any, at least U.S. elections. And so we've got now we've got a bunch of people saying, oh, yes, the Dominion machines are all, they're all horrible. They're all hackable. They were hacked. <laughs> and yet we do need to. States don't have paper ballots, voter verifiable ballots. And so if the machines mis- make a mistake, we'll never know, or a hack will never know. Is that something that has ever brought up in the context of these cybersecurity policy documents? Earlier, so I think I will answer this. Uh, I'll pick an altitude. Part of the reason PPD21 is old and needs a refresh slash rewrite is we, the world's changed in the level of hyperconnectivity and dependence on critical, you know, Digital infrastructure has changed a lot since the Obama administration. And election security is not its own designated critical infrastructure sector. It's a subsector of government facilities sector. It is pretty important. This is only under five years old, and both its political appointees, Director Krebs and now Director Easterly, have elevated the importance of their responsibilities for this subsector. It's not even a whole sector, but it's a subsector. They both put significant assistance into election security integrity and election ISAC and the multi-state ISACs and things like that. So that is implied, you know, I don't think this strategy gets down to the individual sectors too, too much. There were earlier drafts where certain sectors were called out as being more critical than others, Mm. but uh, for bizarre and infuriating reasons, some of these sectors felt like they should be listed too. And they felt left out and some of them felt like they didn't want to be called out because that might put pressure on them. So as these things go through their fights and fights and fights and fights through the process, um, significant details were stripped hmm. and maybe that's appropriate. Right. And I think because PPD 21 will do a better job making more granular what the sectors are, how, how new sectors are added. Like there's a big discussion right now, should space be added? And hmm. most people in Congress say yes. And then are some of these things too vague? 
too understaffed or whatnot. So how many sectors should we have? How do you sunset one? How do you add one? How do you properly fund one? Because being named a designated critical infrastructure sector brings with it certain statutory responsibilities. You need a public-private partnership. You need a sector risk management agency. There's duties to CISA. There's duties to the White House. So um, I think as this got towards the finish line, and it was significantly delayed, like this should have come out a lot sooner than it did. Mm -hmm. But as it got closer and closer to the finish line, um, some of those specificities came out. So to maybe give you some heart, because uh, it seems like a concern area for you, CISA did pick its top priorities for the year across those 16 critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, one of them was K-12 schools, one of them was uh, healthcare, one of them was energy, and one of them was elections hmm. subsector. So even though it's not a sector, she's using her executive discretion to elevate this as one of her top priorities, even above full-fledged critical infrastructure sectors. Uh, so it's also, a pri- as, as such, it's a priority for some parts of CISA, like the JCDC, the Joint Cyber Defense, uh, Cl- Joint Collaborative, ah, I can remember, JCDC. Um, so, boy, do I need some caffeine. Um, too, too many acronyms. I mean, that's just government for you. Yeah, yeah. Joint Cyber Defense Collaborative, I think. But uh, so it's funny. I'm in JCDC, and we just say JCDC. <laughs> Yes. So JCDC also has its strategic planning priorities, which is the, where they interface with private sector entities for collective defense and things like that. So, yeah, I I think different agencies responsible for different parts of critical infrastructure have to act upon this. And one of them, part of the beneficiary of that is elections. I suspect more so after the PPD 21 rewrite. That's good to hear. That is heartening to hear. And I I would, if you, if you've got a contact, I would love to talk to somebody about that because I, uh, election security is definitely something I like to uh, keep up on. And I've interviewed some folks in the past, so but I'd love to talk to somebody well, else about that. Even that passive scanning thing I referred to, that was a project that other lots of people helped with, but Jack Cable was instrumental and he's back at CISA now. And, and that helped use free, you know, census slash Shodan type, you know, passive scanning to, uh, to help warn election facilities. So a lot of those things were born for that election security initiative. So something like the government's been doing lately, and I mean, TikTok's sort of related to this, but Huawei is maybe a better example where we're worried about foreign technology. A lot of our stuff is manufactured in China, and obviously in a lot of levels, China is an adversary of ours, uh, a competitor in some other ways, certainly economically. But we're trying to ban some of these foreign products, and some companies are trying to diversify, which I think makes sense for any company to do, but some are right, are, are out, right, like leaving China, you know, for, for other places. And yet, I think that playing devil's advocate a little bit, is there, is there not a, an argument to be made that, that almost like mutually assured destruction, if we, if we had these economic and political and manufacturing dependencies on each other, where we couldn't really screw with the other because it would hurt ourselves, should we not be looking more like zero trust kind of things where I don't care where this thing's from, uh, I'm going to build my system so that I don't, I don't trust it. I don't care. It, it doesn't matter if I don't trust it as opposed to all pulling back into our own areas and trying to make our, all of our own stuff. So without indicating preference, just to be descriptive, the world goes through rhythms, seasons, ebbs and flows. And we were in a globalization mode. And for a multitude of reasons, we are now in a reverse globalization mode. This is even pre-pandemic, mm. geopolitical sometimes, but also just costs, labor, supply chain resilience. Mm. The pandemic made it worse because what we didn't realize is we had done what some would call concentration of risk, right? 
put more eggs into fewer baskets. So when there's a disruption in one place, all of us thought we had supply chain resilience and alternative suppliers, but they all pointed back at the same handful. And I personally experienced this during the pandemic when everyone thought on paper they had plenty of resilient supply for medical goods. And it turned out there was one manufacturer in Malaysia that was everyone was pointing to, you know, and when they got disrupted, everybody got disrupted. So, yeah. So number one is uh, there's a, me- a mega trend of reverse globalization in a lot of areas. But number two, it's because it intersected with even in the U.S., there's concentration of risk, right? More eggs and fewer baskets. Like when JBS meets got hacked, it was some, I think it's 25 percent of the meat packing in the country. Right. Right. Really in the world. But I mean, for our dependence is about 25 percent, if I recall, that's material concentration of risk mm-hmm. through mergers and acquisitions. A lot of the medical device, um, not medical device, uh, medical supply packaging manufacturers so that, you know, you have one hack. Americold is a cold chain uh, cold storage facility all across the U.S. They got hacked in 2020, November 2020, and it affected quite a bit of food spoilage and whatnot. Mm. Uh, and they just got hacked again, like a month ago during RSA or around RSA timeframe. So, um, you know, th- those two things have people, even for non-protectionist or non-paranoia reasons, um, looking to make sure we have local uh, and plural supply chain alternatives and and, and local supply chain. And when it comes to national security, then you want high assurance, you know, foundries and supply chain things. There's a fantastic book as well that is in the water supply even before the pandemic called Ghost Fleet. It's a um, fictionalized uh, story of the next war. And it was written by August Cole, former journalist, uh, current journalist, uh, and Peter W. Singer. And it's a, it's a, it's a fantastic read. I mean, it's it's actually mandatory reading at West Point now, if I recall. Oh wow! It's certainly feeding the notion of the fifth offset and and different things about military theory. But for a, an abundance of reasons, um, reverse globalization, the, the exacerbated effects of the pandemic, concentration of risk internationally and domestically, um, people are onshoring more than they used to, and and creating more redundancy than they used to. E- even even climate change issues and weather pattern changes are necessitating that if all if way too much of a certain crop, like look at the Ukrainian conflict had a disruption to a certain right. grain. They made most of that grain for the whole world. When that goes away, everybody goes away. And, you know, you have enough of those and people start to starve or, you know, economic impact on disproportionately on uh, less wealthy parts of the, of the world. So these things um, are being recalibrated, some for good reasons, some for bad reasons, but there are a bunch of mega trends. I don't know if I'm even close to answering your question, <laughs> but then there's obviously um, when you, if you don't trust or should not trust a high assurance mission support for something to be dependent upon for someone that, from a country you may not trust, or you may have public and or not public reasons not to trust. So I'm a big, I, I mentioned Dan Gear all the time and I am speaking like him in a lot of areas. I like one of the cavalry first principle type things is that, uh, we are over-dependent on undependable things. And, and the whole point of that is you should look about proportionality, right? So how, uh, if, if it's a, a low importance thing, don't, don't care. If it's a high importance thing, you do care. Um, so we should have trust and transparency should be proportional to cost of being wrong, right? To, to cost of consequences. The, the line I had in the executive order 14028 was in the end, the trust we place in our digital infrastructure should be proportional to how trustworthy and transparent that infrastructure is and to the consequences we will incur if that trust is misplaced. So like, that's how I think, that's how Gangier thinks. And um, I don't think it's xenophobic per se to say that for something like 
our most secret, secret, you know, national security ish thing should have higher standards or care. Sure. Yeah. And some of these things, even if you could like get source code and things like that, are you going to really spot it off by one? There was a great line in a book, Rootkits Revealed by uh, Butler and Hoagland that said, what's the difference between a backdoor and a deliberate off by one coding error? And nothing. <laughs> nothing. But plot, well, I, I actually asked that to someone at Port Mead once and he said plausible deniability because you can at uh-huh. least see the backdoor. Uh-huh. And I'm like, that's, I mean, it's, it's beautiful, right? You think about it. Yeah. But, no, I, I think for certain things where the cost of wrong is too high, you you shouldn't take elective risk and those. But that's a sliding scale, and people can take it too far. I think the discuss. I don't want to get into TikTok discussion, but I think most of the rhetorical bits around TikTok are missing the actual real concerns of TikTok, and and they're more like they don't let their own citizens use the version we have <laughs> for a reason, like like uh, and. Uh, so it's less about stealing things, which is a red herring or, you know, a lot of these are global companies anyhow. And a lot of the risks that they're flagged in TikTok are also present in onshore, which is why I'm equally circumspect of lots of onshore social media things. But um, but generally speaking, we're going to have a, a risk tolerance for good and for bad reasons that is also sitting in a sea of these macro trends. Megatrend. Since most of my audience is not, probably not in government, probably not running infrastructure companies. Let me back way up and just ask from somebody who's into resilience, what advice do you give to your friends and family who ask you, you know, what can I, what are some of the simple things I can do to be more cyber resilient? What are, you know, what kind of products should I buy or avoid buying? You know, how do I avoid being the weakest link or the slowest antelope (laughs) kind of thing? Should I, as a, just a regular old consumer, how much should I be thinking about redundancy and backup systems, like having a generator or oh. uh, things like that? What, you know, what are some good Boy Scout, always be prepared kind of things you might recommend for people? I think it's very hard to actually protect yourself right now. And I think a lot of my advocacy and work and I had the cavalry and rugged software before that, and some of these public policy things I work on, it's to make it easier for the average citizen yeah. to just trust things and have them be trustworthy. And that's not right. the case right now. Uh, we're very, very far from that. I mean, you might find some themes in the recent CISA publication I mentioned, safety by design, safety by default. It's not perfect. It's superficial. And it's kind of like someone asked me if it was the Josh Corman greatest hits. I didn't invent all of them, but I mean, I've certainly been advocating for a lot of those things. So I was surprised to see that published um, well after I left, but um, some of the driving forces behind that are two really smart guys, uh, Bob Lord and uh, Jack Cable are helping to drive a lot of that content. But I would say, um, look, if it's, uh, we have a lot of elective attack surface, like not mm-hmm. everything needs a microphone to capture right. and transmit your voice and not everything needs a camera to capture and transmit your, your image and not every device should be smart. Smart things are dumb, right? Generally speaking, like, there's a cost to connectivity you're exposing. Anytime you have the ability to capture and transmit voice or, t- or information about yourself or image, you're exposing yourselves to accidents and adversaries. You're hoping the manufacturer did everything to care about your privacy as much as you did. You're hoping they did a good job executing it because even if they do care about it as much as you, they can get it wrong. And it is just uh, the velocity with which adversaries find and exploit things is much faster than the ability, the, the velocity with which we identify and remove those flaws. So if you don't need a microphone and a camera on everything in your house, don't do it. And if you have to buy things that are connected and exposed, in fact, I did a a TED talk about this 10 years ago. It was uh, called Swimming with Sharks, and I should watch it again. I'm probably going to cringe at how (laughs) 
different I look now, but it was pretty much on the money uh, for trying to talk to my neighbors or my you know family or whatnot. But when you add software to something, you make it hackable. And when you connect it to other things, you make it exposed. So the Internet of Things is, you know, we're exposed to every apex predator, every accident adversary, and we don't have to be. So I think the, the most prudent thing is if you don't need to depend on it, don't. Uh, and if you do need to depend upon it, like seek things that are patchable, right? You can't be both hackable and unpatchable. It's unsafe at any speed. Right. Get things that are patchable and have a commitment to how much the patching there will be. Part of the strategy is to have labeling and signaling to market so that yes. you can buy things you need. I've been a big advocate for 10 years on software bill of materials, SBOM. It's been, you know, matriculating. It shows up in here again. And there's still a lot of opponents to transparency, which should anytime anytime someone's arguing against transparency, it should raise your hackles. But yes. But, um, you know, I'm still in the fight. We're still sort of winning the fight, but we still have quite a bit of adversarial pushback on transparency. Some people are very afraid of that for the software you have, right? So I, I basically say, if you look at the Patch Act, maybe this is how I'll tie this off. The Patch Act is a proxy for what could happen elsewhere. Patch Act was just for medical devices, but it said, look, we're going to re- regulate that you're patchable. We're going to regulate that you have a threat model that you submit. You know, maybe the experts won't know how to read uh, non-experts won't know how to read a threat model, but we want to know that you've put some thought into least privilege and, you know, privilege escalation and lateral movement. And what's the worst that could happen and contain nicely compromise. Uh, number three, we want you to have a software build, machine generated machine readable software build materials. So you know what's in it so that if there's a log for J, you can tell, am I affected and where am I affected in seconds instead of just waiting to get hit. And there's a bunch of other stuff in there, but like you could imagine a consumer version of this. And I'm aware of initiatives to, to help on labeling mm. requirements and first principles for this. And I believe this is one of the things you'll see come on implementation plans from the White House, um, at least guidance, not necessarily regulation, but you know, what does this look like? Can it be internationally harmonized? There's some things happening in Europe, in Singapore, in Japan, elsewhere as well. So this SBOM thing seems to be taking root internationally and some of these things like being patchable. Uh, I, I would say a leader here is go look at the UK code of practice. The UK government did pass it in a law eventually, but this is for consumer IoT. It's, you must be patchable. You should have avoid hard coded passwords. Uh, you should have a coordinated vulnerability disclosure program so that good faith researchers can bring you flaws without fear of legal reprisal, things like that. You should encrypt data at rest and in transit. Really simple basics. And I think number one is don't have a connected thing if it doesn't need to be connected thing. Number two is uh, try to make sure that if you're going to buy some, that they're patchable and they have a good security program and a good reputation. And number three, um, make sure you're vigilant to make sure you're applying those patches when they're available. But uh, when it comes to generators and things like that, that you're asking about, like, I, I think um, all, I just have a very simple engineering perspective. All systems fail. You should be prepared to handle failure. So the, the cavalry frameworks for a lot of these regulatory things were you should avoid failure by safety by design. You should take help avoiding failure without suing the helper with coordinated disclosure programs. You should capture study and learn from failure by having tamper evident forensically sound evidence capture or logging. You should uh, fail safely or separate critical systems from non-critical systems. And you should have a prompt and natural response to failure. So avoid failure, take help avoiding failure, capture and learn from failure, contain and isolate failure and respond to not prevent future failure. And if devices can't handle those basic five primitives, then we're in a bad way. There was also an IoT Cybersecurity Improvement Act that we passed in the law. Uh, the init- initial bill was much better than the final bill, but hmm. uh, special interests and lobbyists again. <laughs> but um, with that, that the UK Code of Practice, I think these are going to end up being mandatory labeling. It probably will not be on the box that you buy or on the website, but you might have a way to look up. 
their security posture through like a QR code or some sort of universal landing spot. But um, I think people are starting to realize that as we become more dependent on digital infrastructure, uh, it has to be more dependable. And uh, hopefully there'll be more conscientious purchasers. All right, man. One more question before I let you go. I know it was just released in March, but has by any chance, has there been any noticeable changes as a result of this policy document being released or something else put in motion because of this document? And then what as citizens, as we're monitoring this, what do we expect next? How do we, because, you know, maybe the first, the first one didn't make like national news. I don't think uh, maybe it did. Um, but I mean, I don't know that the follow-ups are going to make national news or, or the, the follow-on stories. How do we pay attention to what is going to be happening and keep track of our progress uh, of this document? Yeah, people kept saying, well, when's, when's the implementation plan coming? And that's kind of a malformed question. It's some of these things that they telegraphed were already in flight and public and published when they published the overall umbrella okay. of them are coming. They give it more like a rolling thunder, right? So this is the overarching strategy and elements. And as things come out, they'll be tethered to, you know, pillars or sub pillars. I know if you watch their speeches right now, um, director, the, the initial ONC director was, um, Chris Inglis, he retired. So the acting director is Kemba. Uh, if you watch Kemba's remarks, Kemba has been talking about workforce a lot. So I would anticipate more detail on workforce and cyber citizenry soon at RSA conference, just a couple weeks ago, CISA in support of this published their safety by design, safety by default publication. They also put out um, some SBOM guidance with the department of energy. They also put out, draft attestation forms for executive order 14028 for things like that. That was the response to solar winds. So the matriculation of executive order 14028 is in pillar two, uh, not pillar two, pillar it's in one of the pillars. I think it's either pillar one or three, but um, not only do they want to finish that, they want to add to it. So these things are that are coming out may not be have a blinking light saying, Hey, we're part of pillar three, but they are being executed because prioritized and executed and published because they're in this strategy. My, if I were a betting man, since we're nearing hacker summer camp, I would expect some fire to be held for a publication around hacker summer camp. Hmm, okay. I think we'll have some intermediate things because we've seen people whispering about it, but I think some of the bigger publications would be there. I'm not, I'm not professing inside baseball. I'm just watching <laughs> when these things come out. Some things came out during RSA. Some more things will probably come out during Black Hat DEFCON. Oh, the AI stuff, by the way. Arguably, that was part of the investment in the future. So the... The, the recent AI meetings. Which recent AI meetings? I'm trying to remember what they called them, but they had... AI has been all over the news. Vice President Harris convened uh, AI thing weeks ago. Uh, yeah, so they brought in a bunch of people to testify, right? That too. I and mean, there was a testimony yesterday that's unrelated, or maybe a follow-on. But DEFCON policies announced that AI Village... So part yes, of AI, I did see that. Yeah, all These are connected. So the White House, mm. you know telegraphing uh, this AI hacking village or I can't remember what they're calling it, but um, these are under the banner of pillar four. So whether they are good at advertising, these things we're doing conform to the strategy. They do conform to the strategy. Uh, and also on pillar three, the whole shaping market forces, um, a bunch of lawyers and legal scholars got together to talk about the state of liability assumptions, fact and fiction at the federal and at the state level. So, so those conversations are happening as well. Well, it's good. I mean, it's good to see, honestly, just that this stuff is actually getting worked out. Cause I felt like maybe I just wasn't as tuned in years ago, but it seems like 
there's been a lot more flurry of activity in recent years around these things. And maybe it's just because it's coming to a fore. There's just been so many ransomware attacks and so many other things pushing this stuff along. Maybe it's, we're just finally responding, but it's good to see we're doing it. And I'm glad to see the document. I'm glad we have people like you out there helping to put together these kind of documents. So anyway, Josh, thanks for coming on and <laughs> answering all the questions. No worries. So there were, there were so many questions I didn't get to. So many things I wanted to talk to Josh about. My list of questions was really long. I knew it was going to be too long. Uh, obviously, I'd saved. So some of these questions actually bled over into uh, some patron-only content. On Patreon, I have a special private podcast where I do some some special things. And on the interview shows, on those weeks, I capture you know extra questions with the guest. Often it's stuff that's not related directly to what we talked about on the show, just to kind of keep it, you know, tangential. Uh, but in this case, there were definitely some questions I didn't get to that I had to ask later. I got like almost another half hour's worth of interview content with Josh. And one of the really interesting things we talked about was what they call a tabletop exercise. And this is where you kind of do a war game scenario where let's pretend something bad happens. Let's let's go through it. Let, let's see how we react to this. Okay. So I'm going to tell you right now that your, your medical electronic record system at this hospital has been taken down. The ransomware has, has made it completely unavailable. What do you do? And this is something they actually did with the hospital and they found out right away that it brought them to, to their knees because while they had paper backup systems that, you know, that we used for decades prior to having electronic records, nobody knew how to use them. So anyway, we, we talk about some of that stuff in the bonus content. Uh, Josh talked about a lot of things. I've put as many links to the most important ones as possible in the show notes. So, you know, the White House Strategy Guide, obviously. Josh mentioned his blog article called Consequential Cybersecurity, which is kind of kind of his take on the the main pillars in the White House Strategy Guide. Uh, obviously, links to I Am the Cavalry, if you're interested in that. I He talked about his Swimming with the Sharks TED Talk. Uh, I haven't watched it all yet. I've started watching it. It looks great. Uh, there's a link in the show notes for that. And, and many other things, the PPD 21 document and all these things that we kind of mentioned, I try to throw in, throw into the show notes, but I think we really need to be looking at this stuff in a different light. I mean, you know, like think back to like world war two and probably world war one as well, you know, where they had campaigns like, you know, loose lips, sink ships and turn your lights off at night and collecting medals for the war effort and things like that. I mean, you know, it's not quite that bad, but I mean, we, I think we do need to kind of think about personal security, your personal security, like not just as a business, but like you listening to this podcast right now, you know, your personal security, it's part of your kind of patriotic or at least civic duty to make sure that you're being secure. Because like I like to say, you know, security is a we thing, not a me thing. You know, if you're less secure, we're all less secure. And so that's why I made those coupons. That's one of the reasons I made those coupons. If you know, if you go to fdsd.me slash coupons, you'll find that article. And my latest effort where I want to recognize people who are doing good deeds. Uh, and for those people who really go above and beyond, I would like to, you know, recognize that effort. And to that end, I'm going to be giving away some of my really cool dragon challenge coins to people. And the way you get nominated for one of those things is you submit something at fdsd.me slash quest. That'll tell you all the information you need. So Josh, as you know, was one of the founding members of I Am The Cavalry. Um, and it is just this year hitting its 10 year anniversary. In fact, I think it was announced at B-Sides and DEF CON exactly 10 years ago. So that's, you know, going to be August coming up here. I think Josh said he's going to be giving a keynote about this 
at the B-Sides Las Vegas, and I'm hoping to see that while I'm there. And I'm absolutely looking forward to that. So anyway, I hope you really enjoyed that interview. I know I certainly did. Josh is such an interesting guy. Hopefully we can bring him back periodically. I've got a great interview next time with Ernesto Falcone. That'll be in two weeks. And I'm working on some really cool interviews coming up after that. So if you haven't, obviously subscribe. That way you won't miss any of this. Tell your friends, tell your families, spread this around on social media. Really great stuff coming up. Not sure exactly what I'm going to be doing yet for DEF CON this year in terms of for the, for the podcast content for you guys, but I will definitely be bringing back reports from DEF CON. I will capture some audio there, maybe do some interviews while I'm there again, like I did in the past. I don't know if I'm going to be talking to Jeff Moss again this year, but I do have some interesting things in the works. So again, subscribe. That way you won't miss it. If you want to be a patron, if you want to get some of this great bonus content and join our discussions on Discord, we got some, a great community growing there. You can go to patreon.com and look for Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. Or if you go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com and go to the support tab, you can find all the information there as well. With DEF CON and Black Hat and B-Sides coming up, I will be there in Vegas. I will be going certainly to DEF CON and a little bit of B-Sides, maybe a little bit of Black Hat. Uh, you might want to get some Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons swag. Be sporting a t-shirt or a hoodie or baseball cap or something i got all i got all sorts of stuff up here just to just go to uh fdsd.me slash merch and that will take you right to the shop all right everybody take care stay safe out there and until next week as always don't get caught with your garbage down <laughs>